Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. I'm Mary Wellesley, a contributor to the LRB, and I'm joined, as always, by Irina Dumitrescu, who also writes for the paper on medieval literature. Hello, Irina. Hello, Mary. In the last episode, we followed the adventures of Havelock the Dane, a royal prince deprived of his heritage, but initiated into the English fishing industry. Today, we jump to the 14th century for an introspective Arthurian romance about a knight trying to live up to his perfect reputation. We are talking, of course, about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Irina, Gawain is built, I suppose, a little bit like a kind of Russian doll with with these kind of stories nestled inside stories. Maybe you could just start by giving us a bit of a an overview of the poem. Of course. Well, I think maybe the first thing to say is your typical medieval romance is a is a rambling beast. You know, it's quite typical for the knight to start on one adventure and just go from one to the other uh, with random things happening. And that's not the case with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a very intricately crafted poem. And we might think of it as a series of games. So it begins at King Arthur's court at Christmas with a stranger who comes in and proposes a beheading game. So he will have his head knocked or cut off, and Gawain will suffer the same thing after exactly one year. Gawain then heads out on this adventure a year later to fulfill his part of the deal, and he lands in a mysterious court belonging to a man named Bertilac, where he's proposed another game, which is an exchange of winnings, where every day Gawain will lie in bed and lays around, and Bertilac will go hunting. And at the end of the day, they will exchange their winnings. Of course, what the winnings are is not clear. Bertilac uh, hunts animals and brings those home. Uh, Gawain is hunted by Bertilac's wife uh, while he's lying in bed, trying to be polite, but avoid getting into trouble at the same time. And he wins kisses and gives those at the end of the day to Bertilac in exchange for uh, the hunted animals. Uh, there are three hunts, one of Heinz, uh, then a hunt of one boar, and on the final third day, a fox is hunted. So these are this is our triptych that takes up a great deal of the poem. And then there's a final showdown at a green chapel where Gawain shows up to present his neck for chopping. It's discovered that he's cheated a little bit at the game of exchanges. He's kept back a magical girdle that's supposed to save his life, but it's all actually quite understandable. He, however, is very ashamed. He he loses his sense of self. He returns back to Camelot, a changed man. And so that's the structure. You know, we have this one larger quest story that begins and ends in Camelot. And in between, we have this tripartite, playful game that's in the middle, which is at Bertilac's Castle, which is really a test of Gawain and who he is. So maybe we can take a, a little bit of a step back and say, what do we know about who wrote this poem, when it was written, where? Can you just give us a bit of a sketch? 
Well, we wish we knew exactly who wrote it. The the author is anonymous, but it's we often call this author the pearl poet um, or the Gawain poet because it seems the same person wrote at least four poems, all of which are in one manuscript. This is Cotton Nero A10 uh, in the British Library, and the other poems are Pearl, Patience, and Cleanness. And it's possible this author, uh, the same poet, also wrote Saint Urquhart, which is not in the manuscript. This is somebody in the 14th century writing in the Northwest Midland dialect. Scholars generally assume it's a man and refer to, to the poet as he, but we have no evidence of that. We do know, however, that the poem has some very strong female figures, and we will get to that later. Yeah, and I think it's also perhaps helpful to say just how kind of odd this poem is and the other poems within the manuscript. You know, it's written in this very particular dialect, which is pretty, it's very difficult Middle English. I think it's, you know, Chaucer's English is is roughly the ancestor of modern English. So it's much, much easier to kind of make your way through. But this is, it's. I suppose we would say it's provincial, but it's from this very particular area in the Northwest Midlands. And there's something so wonderful about the kind of oddness. And for me, there's a sort of magic in the fact that we don't know anything about this author. You know, who was this person who created these extraordinary works in this presumably quite provincial place, quite kind of cut off from, you know, Chaucer we know had court connections. He was part of this kind of rich literary world in London. But but who was this poet? Right. And it has, you know, all of the works are highly crafted. I think this is part of the style of the Pearl Poet or the Gawain Poet. What we have in Gawain is um, four sections, what are also called fits, with exactly 101 stanzas. And each stanza is quite long and made up of alliterative lines. So if we think back to Beowulf and the alliterative verse of Old English, which was standard for Old English, unrhymed alliterative verse, we're seeing a later Middle English version of this that's popular in the North. These have four or five stresses. And then there's a funny sort of little element that's specific to this uh, stanza, something called a bob and wheel. So the bob is a very short line after the main stanza. And then there's a rhymed quatrain, which is called the wheel. So we're going to mention that the bob and wheel as, as we go along. But Again, very complex. It's almost like there's a little head or a little tail hanging off the bottom of each stanza, which often has a sort of snappy quality that sums it up or that changes things. So Gawain has 101 stanzas, and that's also the same number of stanzas that we have in Pearl, which is this other uh, poem within the manuscript. And Pearl as well is very, very interested in numerology and the significance of numbers. And so when we have this number three in Gawain, it's it's clearly very significant and it recurs again and again. And there's a sense that the poet feels the kind of magical, perhaps divine power of numbers. Um, so we have to be always alert to that. But I think it just it's important to just highlight how crafted and intricate these texts are. Absolutely. And I think what we will see as we go through it is how much craft itself comes up in the poem. Uh, so this is a poet who is interested in how things are made, and how beautiful things are made, and uh, and knows that they're made by certain hands. You know, in, in Gawain, as we'll see, those are often women's hands who make the crafts that are so beautiful um, that other people enjoy the sight of. Uh, but this is always in the background. And, and I wouldn't want to 
say this is not true for other poetry, but certainly with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or any of the works of, of the same poet, just as with Chaucer, we can assume that absolutely everything is intentional. Every single detail, every single line, every single word that has two or three meanings is there on purpose. And we could tell that just because of the way the poem is put together. Okay, so what about Gawain as a character? Okay, so who is Gawain? I mean, he occurs in other texts elsewhere. Absolutely. So Gawain is the son of Arthur's sister. Sometimes this is Morgos, sometimes this is Anna. And the important thing to say about him is he's a kind of celebrity of medieval romance. He's famous. He's already famous in the stories. He comes in already famous. He's the paragon of knighthood. He's the chief knight in Arthur's court. Some say his name is the equivalent of courtesy. That's what he stands for. We have other Gawain romances in Middle English. And what's interesting about them, you know, I like to think of Gawain as almost a Captain Kirk figure because, you know, in every romance, he winds up with another woman and then she handily disappears or dies by the next time he gets to another romance and he can have another, um, another wife or another lover. Uh, so he has this reputation as a ladies' man. But he's also, uh, I think this is important to say, it's not just that. It's not just that he's courteous or he knows how to romance the women and so on. What happens in the stories told about him is that he always says yes. Gawain is the man for whom courtesy means always acquiescing to what's asked of him, either by his host and Sir Gawain and the Carl of Carlisle. The Carl of Carlisle is a sort of brutish but wealthy man, a kind of bluebeard figure who at one point tells Gawain to go sleep with his wife. And Gawain says, okay, of course, you know, goes into bed, starts making love to his wife. The Carl says, no, <laughs> stop right there. <laughs> Actually, he, he says, I'll sleep with, his, sleep with my wife and I'll watch. <laughs> and then he's... He makes him stop and sends in his daughter, right? And they spend the, Gawain and the daughter spend the night together. But Gawain is not doing that out of attraction necessarily, but because his host has asked him to. So when you, when your host asks you to, you know, have sex with your wife and, and then child. Yes. <laughs> you just acquiesce. Yeah. You're a knight of Camelot. Of course you say yes. In Sir Gawain, the wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnell, Arthur asks Gawain to marry a hideous old woman. And Gawain says, of course, for my buddy Arthur, I'll do anything. And he marries her. And when it's time to go to bed with her, he seems to acquiesce to that too. That didn't happen in The Wife of Bath. No, exactly. So this is what we want to keep in mind, that his reputation is not just perfect gentility, but that it's also always acceding to what's asked of him. He never says no. He almost has no personality of his own because he has this reputation and the set of values, which he's always keeping up. And I think we want to keep that in mind, because what's happening in this poem is we see a character who is much more human than the other versions of Gawain that we encounter in, in these other romances. But he's coming up against his reputation. It's almost, you know, like a Malena Dietrich or, you know, these various Marilyn Monroe who says, you know, men went to bed with Marilyn Monroe, but they woke up with me. This is kind of what we're seeing with Gawain, too. He's famous, but his own fame and what his name stands for has become oppressive to him. And that's going to be a central tension in the poem. Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me 
forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 